Hello, this is Sean Dixon, and I'm here with Brian Patterson and John Gonzalez. We are each returned mission presidents for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and this is the Preach My Gospel Mission Prep Podcast. We are here to help prepare you to become successful Preach My Gospel missionaries and lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. In each episode, we explore powerful concepts from every chapter in Preach My Gospel. We will talk to return missionaries and others about their experiences and insights. You can even use this podcast to get institute credit. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back, friends, to another episode of our podcast. Uh, John and Brian and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. We're sitting in Brian's office today at the Utah Valley Institute, and he has a big, large window. And as we record this podcast, we're looking at snow falling and a big tree in the background. And I think we're all feeling jolly and in, in the spirit of Christmas uh, today. Looking jolly. <laughs> <laughs> we just need the glow of a nice fire. Can I put that in I, as a request this year? <laughs> Maybe when you're listening to this episode, you can you can put a fire on and get some cocoa and marshmallows. It's, it's actually a couple weeks before Christmas, but we're anticipating releasing this episode um, just before Christmas. And you know, and we think about Christmas, there we, we think about the Savior Jesus Christ. And as we've pondered this episode, we wanted to to put our focus on one of our major purposes of of the podcast is to help each of our listeners become lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. And so today we want to talk about that, becoming a lifelong disciple of the Savior in the context of Christmas. We'd like to begin with a clip, an audio clip, called The World Needs Your Light, and this is from the Light the World campaign the church has going on here in 2022. So listen to this and think of this in terms of discipleship of Jesus Christ. Christmas started with a baby and a light. He is the light of the world. And his light changed the world. Then there's you. You started as a baby. And you were born with his light in your eyes. As you grew, so did that light. It shined bright when you helped someone, forgave someone, loved someone, or treated someone like Jesus taught. This Christmas, the world needs your light. Your family needs your light. The hungry, the lonely, close friends, and complete strangers all need your light. Jesus taught his followers, ye are the light of the world, and it's time to let your light shine. Text LIGHT to 71234 for daily ideas on how you can show Christ-like love every day this Christmas. Because the world needs your light. I love how that began with the focus on the babe in a manger and uh, the light that he brought to the world. And then as disciples, how it's our wonderful opportunity to go forth into the world and to reflect that light and to, to bring people the light of, of 
of Christ, and especially I think Christmas is a wonderful time to do that. And the light, we talk about it at Christmas, is, is a fact. Um, to tell the story in advance would have, you know, almost be un- unbelievable. But the baby born of the Virgin Mother uh, in a manger, growing up and blessing people, and then dying on a cross and rising from the dead in three days, and then shaking the world to its foundation uh, more than 2,000 years later, still being the standard by which we judge the characters of men. It sounds like a wild tale, but it is a fact, and uh, we rejoice in this season as we always do. Isn't it so wonderful that we know of that story and we feel deeply that story of the birth of the Savior and of the, of the life that he lived and what he accomplished. Uh, I, I feel so blessed amongst all the people of the earth to, to know of the Savior. Yeah, think of our missionary purpose. It's to invite others to come into Christ. It's to invite them to, to change their life and pattern their life after this incredible being. Uh, we, we celebrate his birth, the birth of a baby, but really what, we, what we're doing is we're celebrating the life of this man who is literally the light of the world and, and who changes all of us. And to be a representative of Christ uh, at this season and, and throughout the year, the two years or the 18 months that you serve, is not only a privilege and an honor, but it's, it's a great opportunity to sp- spread that light and share the light of Christ and what he did for us with those that you will be teaching and you will be visiting and, and sharing the gospel with. It's a great season to be a missionary during, during this Christmas season, uh, to, be, to get a front row seat to see how his life is influenced and, and continues to influence so many today. Uh, I, I loved our, our time in the mission field, both as a young missionary as well as with our families that we were able to take in the mission field with us during Christmas time. It's just a special time for missionaries, I believe. I think you, a missionary that's kind of planning when they would go out and serve would probably think to themselves, how can I, is there any way I could have just one more Christmas at home and, and avoid two Christmases in the mission field or, or whatever? And, and then you get out and you actually experience Christmas in the mission field. And I think you start to change your tune and you start to think, well, wouldn't it be great if I could always spend Christmas this way as a full-time disciple of Jesus Christ. I remember when I went to Toronto, Canada on my mission, the first Christmas that I spent was in an area called Hamilton. It was a kind of a, an industrial town in Ontario. Uh, there was less foreigners, more Canadians there, a little bit harder to teach, didn't have quite as many people to teach. And in that area, as Christmas was approaching, I was thinking, oh, just remembering all the traditions of my family back at home. I, I, I grew up in one of those families that was just filled with tradition surrounding Christmas. It was just the best time of the year. And I just thought, oh, my family's home doing all these things, and it's going to be really hard for me. But as we got closer to Christmas, I just became more filled with, with joy as I was out there Every single day, just spreading the light of Christ, teaching people about the Savior. And I'll never forget one day my companion turned to me and he said, Elder Dixon, people back home must be really praying for you because you're way too happy at Christmas time. And, and I just said, you know what? I, I just think that 
what better thing could you be doing to celebrate the birth of Christ than to be out there inviting others to come unto him? And, and actually, my Christmases in the mission field were some of my favorite and most memorable. Well, I remember leaving on my mission in November, which meant that first Christmas was spent in the missionary training center, which in those days was called the language training center, which dates me. But I remember anticipating feeling a loss and homesick. But the bond that I had with those who were in my district in the training center and waking up on Christmas morning, and I remember the room where there were four of us, two separate bunk beds uh, with a little tiny Christmas tree. I mean, that was one of the most memorable Christmases I can remember Uh, And the bond I had with those three others in that room still exists today. And then, of course, the following year, I was in the mission and just loving every aspect of being with the people and celebrating Christmas, the season, with those that I was teaching and that I had come to love. You actually added family to your life. That that little group of three missionaries became an extension of your family. The people that you're teaching you know, at Christmas time, become an extension of your family and, and you get to have still your family, but now you just keep adding right. people to your, to your story, right? I can't think of Christmas and not think of Jesus Azucena, who was baptized on December 25th, 1994. Uh, we had been assigned by our mission president, my companion and I, to open, a, open an area there was a a small branch, and when I when you think of a small branch, think of a twig. It probably should have been called a twig, not a branch. <laughs> it was so small up in the mountains of Guatemala. And uh, when we received the assignment to open that area, there hadn't been missionaries there for a long time. Our mission president invited us to find a wife for the for the young uh, single. Uh, branch president of this really small branch. And so we made big plans to go find the most beautiful girl in all of Cunan that he could, he could marry. And, uh, and the Lord directed us to Jesus Azucena. And uh, she was baptized on December 25th on Christmas Day. Uh, she would later marry the branch president and be sealed in the temple there in Guatemala. But it was my last day in that area uh, we had been, I had received uh, transfer calls and I would be sent to a new area. And so there was one bus that came through Kunan every night and uh, you needed to get on that bus or, or you weren't going to make it. And so I loaded up my stuff. Uh, we took it to the church, had the baptism, and then we got on the bus on Christmas, Christmas day. We had no phones. And so we were eager to get down the mountain and make a very late call to our family and uh, halfway to our destination where the zone leaders lived, uh, the bus driver who owned the bus decided that he wanted to have Christmas with his family. So he stopped in the town halfway down and said, I'm going to have Christmas with my family. And there were no other buses going. And so we unloaded from the bus, us and the passengers, and we spent what we call now our silent night, uh, which became a holy night for us as we gathered with the other passengers under the stars of Sacapulas, and, and we sang Christmas songs. and uh, it, was, it was a glorious Christmas, a white Christmas and a glorious Christmas. I'll never forget that night, singing those wonderful Christmas songs with complete strangers. 
what a sweet experience. And, uh, you know, of, of all the experiences in my own family growing up and, and as an adult with, uh, with my own children, while they were, are wonderful and I remember them, I, I really have to be honest, I cannot remember anything more sweeter than celebrating Christmas while I was on my mission. And I think you cannot get lost in the chaos of Christmas that we so easily get lost in at home, right? You're, you're focused on helping other people come to know him, the true meaning of Christmas. And I think that's why these, these Christmases in the mission field resonate with us so much. We're able to avoid the commercialism. And one good thing, missionaries just don't have money. And so you don't have to worry. I mean, the gifts that you give would be very simple, very focused on the Savior, gifts of your time, your testimony, and that's what that's what makes it sweet. Also, it, it's a time to look forward to call home, and you have an opportunity on Christmas to call back home and to bring light to your family back home and, and to be able to, you don't have to think that I have to to completely forget about my family back home. You, you can enjoy that that call with your family, but, but I mean, when are you going to get an experience like you had in those mountains with a, with a busload of people on Christmas Day, you'll, you'll never forget that. Yeah, and our family was waiting for the phone call. Back then, you got a <laughs> call twice a year, so they really relied upon those phone calls, and that phone call never came. Yeah. It didn't come until the 26th of <laughs> December, right? And, and as long as we're talking to missionaries and future missionaries, uh, you know, Christmas is a time where we think about presents, and we think about uh, what giving presents and receiving and, of course, the commercialization of Christmas. But let's not forget the scripture that says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth or doth corrupt. Hopefully I'm quoting it correctly. Close enough. But uh, lay up your treasures in heaven. And that's what you as missionaries will be doing, laying treasures in heaven. And then as we think about, you know, that, turkey or ham or eating great food on Christmas, just remember the scripture that talks about, uh, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that uh, cometh forth from the Son of Man. Speaking of Christmas gifts, perhaps it would be, uh, perhaps paint a picture for our our future missionaries that are listening. Uh, A friend of mine shared the story of his mission uh, his family had sent numerous gifts. They had a simple tree in their missionary apartment, and uh, and he had uh, lots of gifts under that tree from his family that he would open on Christmas morning. He he didn't really much like his companion, and so he didn't really notice that his companion had no gifts. His companion came from very humble circumstances, and nothing would be coming from home. But but caught up in his own gifts, and maybe his dislike of his companion, he he hadn't noticed. And so Christmas morning, he got up, he unwrapped all of his gifts. And when he unwrapped all of his gifts, there was one other gift there. And he thought, well, maybe that was for his companion that his, that his companion's family had sent. But it had his name on it. And as he opened that gift, he looked over and his companion's just beaming. And his companion, being very poor, he had found a, an old watch in the missionary apartment uh, that was broken. And he noticed that his companion... Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, this is his companion. He noticed that he didn't have a watch. And so his companion had been so thoughtful to take this old left-behind watch. He went and bought a battery and put in it. 
and he ingeniously fastened a paper clip to make the band work, and he had given this gift to his companion, right? And so in, in all of that, uh, you know, I think this is a great time to think of your companion, to be very thoughtful of your companion. And if you sense that your companion comes from circumstances that nothing's coming from home, and like you said, Sean, missionaries don't have a lot of money, maybe you can recruit some help from your from your uh, parents, but but uh, I think that can be a, a meaningful way to, to to give a gift to to your companion. And I think it's not so much the gift itself uh, that it's of any particular value in, in terms of monetary value, as much as the sentiment of that missionary, the the love he had to have fought through that and trying to fix the watch, and then presenting that gift. I, I, in my mind's eye, I'm thinking the Savior presenting a gift to me of salvation. It, it's just it, it's a very sweet experience. I think sometimes we underestimate how much we can fulfill our missionary purpose with our companion. If we have nobody else to teach in our area, we have that person that God has placed with us, who's entrusted to us. And we have a, a remarkable opportunity to practice Christ-like service be selfless, even when we maybe not, like, I don't know if I like him, right? I don't get along with him so much, but that doesn't mean I can't serve him. And I bet you, Brian, that after that experience, he liked his companion a whole lot more as they, as they served one another. And it reminds me of the scripture, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And I was talking about how I was over maybe too happy on Christmas. That doesn't mean all of you will feel that way. There's some of you that will have, will be homesick. You know, you will miss those things. And, and even though you're out there serving the Savior, it, it may be a time um, to be homesick. But I, I think the key to overcome that is to not think about what you're missing out on, but instead think about the opportunity that's right before you. When will I ever get this chance again? I'll have many chances to, to have Christmas back home. But these are this is the only time. And what can I what can I get out of this Christmas experience without experiencing this FOMO, this fear of missing out on what's happening back home? Really the people back home should have FOMO about what you're getting to do. And so if you'll just live in the moment, live in the present, and then forget about yourself. This isn't about you. The mission isn't about you. Forget about yourself. Think about your companion and how he's doing, as Brian just said. Or think about the people that you're teaching or the people that you're, you're meeting on the street. One of the things that we really enjoyed in the California Redlands Mission is we were out during the time of when the Light the World campaign became a big thing. And so December for our missionaries was always very focused on supporting this idea of lighting the world. Um, we would, I remember one of the years, it was 25 ways in 25 days. So every day you could do something else to help light the world. And what our missionaries did is rather than coming from a strong proselyting sense, they would say, hey, would you like to help us light the world? They would find Christian people. And these Christians out there found this as a great resource of like, oh yeah, this is really cool. And we're lighting the world and we'd love for you to to join with us. My wife was in, in a, a line at Target one day and there was a, a lady she's from the Dominican Republic um, 
and she was talking to her children and Michelle could tell this is a Christian woman, just the way she was interacting with these children. And she, Michelle, struck up a conversation with her. It was in the line at Target while they were waiting to, to buy their things. And they became very friendly with each other. And it, they, the lady found out Michelle was a missionary. And Michelle found out this woman was a very strong Christian. And she just said, can I tell you what we're doing in our church to, to light the world this year? And the woman absolutely loved the idea um, and and took a copy of of Light the World, got involved with all the resources, and those two became fast friends. And then soon, our two families became very close friends. We had them over for Thanksgiving. She since has come to visit us in Utah, and she never joined the church. Very prominent in her own church, we went and actually visited her church with with her family, and she came to ours and. And we just have this wonderful uh, relationship now, and it was all because of this, this idea of let's light the world together at this Christmas time. And I have tons of memories of, of missionaries. We used to just tell them, hey, you get to wake up every morning, and all you have to worry about is lighting the world, is, is, is just bringing the Savior to the lives of, of people around you. When else are you going to have an opportunity to do something like that, right? I love that. I love seeing our missionaries go out and, and use this opportunity to, to reconnect with former people that they were formerly teaching, people from the area book, um, those that they were currently teaching, as well as maybe some less active members. Our, our missionaries really love to, to Christmas carol. And I don't know any teenagers that love to Christmas carol, right? I grew up in a family where we carol, and my kids don't want to carol, but it seems like missionaries want to. And, <laughs> and uh, as they would go out and and uh, share the, the the good news, the light of the world through through music. Uh, we'd encourage our missionaries at times to to maybe choose uh, carols that aren't known to the Christian world, like "I am a child of God," or "I know that my Redeemer lives." Uh, they could gift them a Living Christ document. Remember, missionaries are poor, <laughs> or share that wonderful video that comes out with the light of the world. Uh, and invite others to engage in the in the in the calendar of things they can do, and it seems to be people receive that. Yeah, they're in the mode. Freely. They're yeah. in the mode of of wanting to talk of Christ, and so it's during the month of December, the holiday season is just a great time to fulfill your missionary purpose. Right? It's also a great time where people are more receptive to to being able to. Uh, come to church and participate in a worship service. Uh, you know, traditionally Christmas and Easter can be times that people would want to want to go worship, get dressed up, and come to church. And so, we found that our missionaries could invite a lot of people, and that they were very receptive to that invitation to come. You know, on that Sunday, and, and then this year, of course, it's Christmas Sunday. What a gift that is! And I can imagine our missionaries will find great success in inviting many to come and participate. That just reminds me, you know, the, the whole Christian world is focused on December and the 25th of December, as they are in April on Easter. For us as members of the church, we really are celebrating Christmas every Sunday, and we are celebrating Easter every Sunday as we partake of the sacrament and make our covenants anew. So I would just uh, not let us forget that while we are excited about this season, recognize that we are celebrating Christmas and Easter every Sunday because of the, the, the reason the Savior came into the world. That's a great point. Was so that we could 
uh, benefit from his atoning sacrifice. When Elder Bednar was asked, what is the number one way a missionary can prepare to serve? His answer was to become a missionary now. And so as we talk about uh, lighting the world and being a disciple and sharing the gospel, remember, this isn't just for when you're on, on your missions. Um, this Christmas season, who can you serve? Who can you lift? Who can you build up? Do you have a brother or a sister or a friend or, or somebody in your community that, that God will put in your path? As we think like disciples of Jesus Christ, we have our eyes up. We're praying for opportunities to lift and to build. And it's our prayer that each of you that are listening today and, and all, us as well, that we can be put in the path of, of somebody that, that needs to be drawn closer to the Savior this year. Let me just share a, a, a quick uh, story from history. In the German concentration camps of Hitler's day, there were many British sh- soldiers. It was a dark place where no one would ever want to be. But in that place, there was a British medical officer. He was an eye surgeon who could have been exchanged and sent home in in prisoner swaps. He was on the list to go back to England, but he refused. Everyone, even the Germans, pled with him to return to England, but he simply replied, while I have been here in this prison camp, I have been able to treat blinded prisoners and in some cases restore their sight. Others in similar need will come to this camp, and I want to stay to help them. Here, light conquered darkness. And, and that, to me, is kind of the spirit of, of Christmas, wanting to serve someone else at the expense of your own desires. If the young person starts to understand that lesson prior to the mission, I don't know if there's any better mission prep than to, to get the heart of a servant, right? Well, uh, Brian and John, I don't know if you were like me, but when, when I was young growing up, uh, every single Christmas Eve, our family would reenact the uh, nativity story. I starred as Joseph for, for several years until, um, until my older uh, siblings had children, and then I was beat out by other younger Josephs. Right, but we would always reenact. We'd have our robes on and the towels on our head and things like that. And so the nativity is always a very key part of of uh, of Christmas for me. D- did you two do that as well, or we had that tradition? Uh, even my wife and I continued that tradition. We do it today with our grandchildren yeah. as we read through the Christmas story in Luke, and uh, there are different uh, family members who act out. Uh, Grandpa now usually reads. You're the, you've you've I'm, graduated I'm the, to the narrator. I'm huh? the narrator, <laughs> while the grandchildren and others all. Uh, of course, my sons want me to play the donkey. I don't know <laughs> what they're trying to say there. Now there may be some reason in the actual story that the wise men come later, right? I remember a struggle between some shepherds and some wise men that played out, you know, pretty, pretty seriously. Uh, we we did too, and we loved uh, loved what that would do. But uh, getting into the scriptures and really reading it, I've found as I've I've gotten older to be a very powerful and meaningful experience to to read about. This nativity and, and, and what happened 2,000 yeah. years ago. What we'd like to do for the remainder of this episode is to talk about the five key uh, groups of people that were in the nativity. 
and to see what we can learn from them about discipleship, about lifelong discipleship. So we're going to look at Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, and the baby Jesus. And what we want you all to be thinking about, and and you'll probably think of things we don't talk about during this episode as you study about them, but what can we learn about being a true disciple of Jesus Christ from that particular character, right? How about we start with Joseph? Um, let's let's take a look at, at Joseph and what we might be able to to learn from him. Uh, Brian, I think you were you were reading a, a statement by Elder Holland where, about Joseph earlier. Yeah, I love this. As we as we come to understand who he was, we don't know a lot about him, uh, but we do get some clues in the text. Uh, but I love what Elder Holland said. We could remember the Savior's virtually unknown foster father, a humble carpenter by trade who taught us, among other things, that quiet, plain, unpretentious people have moved this majestic work forward from the very beginning and still do so today. If you are serving it almost anonymously, please know that so too did one of the best men who has ever lived on this earth. I can't help but think of our young missionaries. Uh, the world doesn't know them by name. The world knows very little of them. They don't come into this world with, with uh, you know, tremendous talents and abilities that will make them famous by any means. But they serve, in most cases, anonymously. They give what they can. Uh, and so I think, when I think of Joseph, I think of, of those that serve without a lot of fanfare. When you think of that also, the focus was on Mary and Joseph was satisfied to be in a supportive role and that's what he he helped the move the the work in a supportive role sometimes we get caught up and and we want to be part we want to be the leader we want to uh, take charge as opposed to joseph who was very much uh, grounded and in a supportive mode to move the work forward fulfill the foreordained role that that Heavenly Father had given him, and to do it so well. And remember, he was a foster father, which I, I think shows that, you know, that he was willing to, to, to not be the show, not, not be out in front, but to serve where called. Yeah. Now let's go into the scriptures just for a minute but with regard to Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Now, when you're espoused back in that day, it was a legal and binding engagement. It was was even at a higher level than, than engagement would be today. And then it says, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So you can you can imagine how, how difficult this must have been for Joseph to learn that Mary was pregnant and they weren't married. And this was before they came together. And the custom of the day would have required that Joseph put her away very publicly. Uh, this would have been a scandal, and that would have been his responsibility. But let's look for the elements of discipleship in how Joseph handled this situation. Verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, a just man I see is somebody who, who wants to do the right thing, and the right thing would have required him to, to have some accountability here for what he had supposed that Mary had done, but not willing to make her a public example. Like you said, John, it was about Mary, and he, he didn't want to embarrass her, even though maybe in his mind he's thinking, 
She's committed a sin here. He doesn't want to make her a public example. He's minded to put her away privily, which means privately. And it's not like Joseph just gets to put her aside, you know, secretly and carry on with his life. No, this meant he carried on a life of stain. This is a small town, right? Nazareth would have had very few people. Uh, Even his putting her away secretly did not mean he could just be clean of it, right? I I think there would come upon him a stain too. And the scriptures imply that he was thinking, pondering, he was he was thinking about all of this. Yeah. It says it says in verse twenty, but while he thought on these things, behold the angel of the Lord appeared unto him a dream in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine, John, if if Joseph had been rash and had quickly acted and made a public spectacle of this. And then the angel comes and says, Joseph, wait, you don't even know the story. You know, this, this is, this is, uh, this, this baby is from God. He would have, he felt horrible, but because he took time to ponder on these things, to think about these things, to not jump into a, a conclusion, then it gave the time for an angel to come and teach him. Or we could say, for, for most disciples of Christ, the Holy Ghost, to come in and, and lead us and help us make a better decision. And I think that's a, a great quality of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that they take time to think and to ponder and to listen to that still small voice before they act rashly in a way that the natural man would, would normally act. It, it helps me just to think on my own life rather than immediately try to respond to a given uh, incident or, a, a, you know, exchange in a conversation, stop, ponder, think, and, and be led by the Spirit. Yeah. He, he could have sought justice, and he would have had the right to do that, but he sought mercy. And in our relationships, if we can be quick to extend mercy rather than seek justice, all the time. This would bless individuals and families. It would bless missionary companionships. Uh, There's a great model for us. Verse 13, after the, the wise men left, it says, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. We know there is an edict that comes from Herod to destroy all the babies because he was worried that the king of the Jews would rise up. And what does Joseph do after he receives that prompting from the angel? Verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Jesus missed that edict from Herod and was safely in Egypt because Joseph, as a disciple, Listen to promptings of the Spirit. Later in verse 19, Herod's dead. The angel comes again, tells Joseph it's safe to go back. And so now he gets Jesus back to the place where he could then fulfill his great destiny. So here he is, this humble man behind the scenes, and yet he is getting Jesus right where he needs to be to fulfill his divine mission. And that's, to me, that's discipleship. Yeah, he's certainly worthy of revelation. He's lived a life worthy of, of receiving guidance from the Holy Ghost. Had he not acted upon 
that call of the angel to take Mary, to overcome his fears and take Mary to wife, uh, I don't know that he grows to become the man that we see him today. He grows in this principle of revelation. Uh, and and in, in all cases, he didn't know every step. He didn't know the full outcome of what would happen. He acted in faith each time upon those impressions of the Spirit. I, I think of our young listeners who are preparing to serve missions, and missions are just a great season of your life to learn to act quickly upon the promptings of the Holy Spirit, even if you don't know the rest of the story or, or what's going to happen, but to learn to act quickly. So it's interesting. Don't act quickly on natural man instincts, <laughs> but act quickly yeah, on the promptings of the Spirit. Let's shift to Mary. Yeah. What can we learn about discipleship from Mary, the mother of Jesus? I think she was willing to do whatever was asked of her to do in a very humble, quiet way. I'm sure she was overwhelmed when she learned that she was going to carry uh, Jesus and be the mother of Jesus. Much like uh, missionaries today might be overwhelmed uh, that the mission leader asks them to uh, serve in a particular area or step up uh, to a challenge. I, I can't imagine Mary, what, what she was thinking and how she felt. Perhaps, why me? But to have that much responsibility to be the mother of the Savior of the world. I love what it says in Luke 1, verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. She was foreordained to be the, the mother of the Savior of the world. President Nelson has made it very clear to the youth of the church that they've been foreordained to assist in this great work, the gathering of Israel. And so our missionaries can find themselves in, in, in this story. As you skip down, verse 34, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Boy, she's thinking about this, and this, this is a miraculous birth, right? And there's lots of questions and lots of unknowns. And yet in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word without knowing all the answers, her submissiveness to, to the will of the Lord. Later in life, her son would say, not my will, but thine be done. Where did he get that? Well, we see that in his mother. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The Savior had a lot of his mother in him. The, the Christ-like attribute of being willing to be submissive and doing the will of the Lord. I can imagine in circumstances in, in my own life where I'm quick to question, well, wait a minute. Let, let me try to explain you know, how to do this differently. Mary was very much willing to do the will of the Lord. I think of our listeners, and, and, and there are lots of reasons not to serve a mission, uh, and maybe even some of those justifiable, I don't know, but... Uh, if we could all be a little like Mary in that submissiveness, to submit to doing something really, really hard. Well, she's going to see some horrific things happen to her son. She's going to have to do some really hard things. Verse 37, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And I think that's, that's that level of faith that you understand. I don't get this fully. I don't see how I can fulfill this great role of 
being the mother of the Son of God, but with God, nothing's impossible. And that will be the case for all of you missionaries out in the mission field. You know, it's kind of like we could put our own name in there. Fear not, Elder Patterson, thou hast found favor with the Lord. And then can you just picture yourself saying back to, to the Lord, for you sisters, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. What would be the equivalent for an elder? I don't know. Behold the... The servant of the Lord. Servant of the, servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And if, if you give me the word, then I know with God nothing shall be impossible. Mary says here a couple other phrases that I, I just love. In verse 46, my soul doth magnify the Lord. In verse 47, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And I would go back to 39. And uh, and Mary arose and went with haste. Oh, yeah, I love that one. So the, you missionaries, you know, y- you accept the calling, and then you go with haste. Notice where she goes, where the Lord sent her, was to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was going through her own miraculous birth, right, as an old woman now pregnant with John the Baptist, right? And I think of this tender mercy of the Lord here. Here's a, here's a girl. This must have been so lonely because nobody can explain this birth. Nobody can. And no matter how much she tries to explain it to her family, to her friends, to anybody, you can't explain a virgin birth, right? No one is going to accept Few would ever accept that. And yet the tender mercy of the Lord to give her a seasoned companion uh, someone that could be her trainer that was there six <laughs> months prior to her in her own miraculous <laughs> that experience. That is a good right? insight. And, uh, yeah. and, and how that must have just been so helpful as Mary worked through this transition in her life to becoming the mother of the Son of God and, and, and the protection that, that Elizabeth provided her, maybe away from Nazareth, away from the... the the scorn and the ridicule and the name calling that she must have experienced. Uh, I, I love the idea of this sweet companion, this older companion to tutor and bless her and to provide a safe place for her. Now in all of this, the greatest contribution Mary would provide is she would provide a physical body, a mortal body, a fleshy body for the Son of God, a body that would allow him to suffer a body that would allow him to bleed, a body that would allow him to die. That's a gift that came from Mary, uh, giving him that. Because from his father, he would inherit immortality, the, 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 the ability to overcome death. But it's through his mother, that dual nature that he would need to carry out the atonement of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I think of the mothers of the earth that provide these physical bodies that can live and and die, right? This one, of course, being the most important. I was, uh, last month I had the chance to kind of fulfill a lifetime dream of going to Israel. And Michelle and I had a chance to go to Bethlehem, also to Nazareth, and to see the distance that it would have taken uh, Mary and Joseph to, to ride on a donkey. It's It's a significant distance from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But in Bethlehem, there's a church, that it's called the Church of the Holy Nativity, I believe, and, and uh, there's this cave that's there, and um, in that cave is where they think, in a similar type of a cave, is where Jesus would have been born, and it was humble. 
these caves were designed for for a shepherd to bring uh, sheep into the cave with a small entry, and then those the sheep could just fill the cave and he could protect them during the night. And it was in that humble environment that the Savior was born. And we got to walk out of that cave and look over the hillside down into the into this valley which, where the shepherds would have been watching their sheep by night. And John and Brian, I think there's a lot we can learn about discipleship from those shepherds. Does, does anything immediately come to mind for either of you as you, as you think about them and as they came to, to visit the, the, the Son of God? Well, they were responsible for watching over their flock, and they had a responsibility, but then they followed the direction of the angels to go and worship the Son of Man. You know, I, I sometimes think, well, I have a responsibility. Why am I being asked to, uh, to do something in addition to this? They, they followed the, the direction. There's another example of following heaven to get to where you need to be, which is, which is one of the great qualities missionaries need. Yeah, we read in Luke 2, uh, verses 15 through 17, this idea that they didn't just come, but they came with haste. You highlighted that a moment ago. When we speak of missionary work, we speak of urgency, right? We're about a really important work to waste, and we're out our lives in an urgent manner to bring all of God's children back to him. It goes on in the record to say about these shepherds, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. When they had come and seen him, they couldn't help. They didn't return to their flocks. They went to the people and they declared the name of Jesus Christ, that the Messiah was born. And I think, again, of our young missionaries. In, in, I, see, I, I see our young missionaries in these shepherds. They they're disregarded, they're rejected daily, right? And yet come rain or shine, like a shepherd, they're out doing God's work and declaring the good news. I think there's different kinds of shepherds in the world today. Um, there's a true shepherd, and then there's something that we call a hireling, or sometimes you could, you could call it a, a sheep herder. Uh, a couple definitions, a true shepherd tends to, to lead from out front, and the sheep know and love their shepherd and will follow them, whereas a sheep herder tends to lead from behind, kind of whipping the sheep into action, driving them, so to speak. Um, in the scriptures, in John chapter 10, verse 12, it talks about this idea of a hireling, which is a hired shepherd. It's not the, it's not the main shepherd, but someone who's just doing it as a job, who doesn't necessarily care for the sheep. And Jesus said here, but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. And so I think this gives us an opportunity to think to ourselves: what is my flock? What is the flock that Jesus has given to me? And am I a true shepherd like Jesus was? Or am I more like a hireling at the first sign of trouble? I'm out of there, kind of leaving the sheep to themselves. And, and it's really neat how the Lord trusts missionaries with an area. I, I, just, I just think it's phenomenal. I think when missionaries come home, we don't trust them enough. And you trust them with, a, and you can even say you trust them with a flock. With a right? flock of, of people Absolutely. in that area. You think about what they do in the mission field, and then they come home, and 
and, and maybe aren't given responsibility, it's, it's a big mistake because they've proven that they can handle a flock. I have a son in Paraguay right now, and I just look at some of the responsibilities that he's been given. He was in an area, the, the mission president called him in and said, um, you are not going to see another missionary besides your companion for six months. Um, we're going to fly you in on a plane to a dusty airport. You and your companion are going to be charge of two small groups of the church. The branch president will live seven hours away. He only visited once in the six months that he was there. And he was trusted with these two little flocks and, uh, and had the opportunity to learn what it was like to become a true shepherd. And it was so fun to talk to, to him and see how he came to love those sheep that, that the Savior had, had given to him. It's fun to see what the Lord's doing with the with the now returned missionaries in in uh, letting them and allowing them to serve in really meaningful ways. Uh, we're watching returned missionaries being called as counselors and bishoprics and to serve on high councils. Really exciting, and they've learned in the mission field how to care for people, uh, and and we see that as we as we give them opportunities, they're they're able to do it. Yeah, it'd be one of the great blessings of your mission to learn how to be a true shepherd, right? How about the wise men? Let's, let's take a shift to the, to the wise men. Um, we can learn more about them in, in back in the book of Matthew, but maybe we could uh, actually talk about them in the context first of D&C 45 or Doctrine and Covenants section 45, verse 57. There's a verse there that to me really describes what a wise man is. And let's read and look for the qualities of a wise man. And then let's see these wise men in the time of Jesus and how they lived up to this statement. So here it is in section 45, verse 57. It says, For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire but shall abide the day. So the, the qualities there of a wise man, they receive the truth, they take the Holy Spirit as their guide, and they are not deceived. So let's go back into Matthew 2, and let's see how these wise men really fulfill those three statements from the Doctrine and Covenants. And we're in Matthew 2, and, and you get the story there in verses, verses 1 through 12. Uh, It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why would Herod be troubled? (laughs) He is the king, and he doesn't want this idea of a, a new king that would rise up to replace him. He was a very arrogant man. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets. Uh, Scoot down to verse 7. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Now, did, did Herod want to worship the baby? He wanted to kill the baby, but he, he's setting up the wise man here. 
So remember, the wise men are to receive truth, take the Holy Spirit for their guide, and not be deceived. I think it would be a great compliment to be singled out by a king, to be given an assignment from a person of great power, and to really want to please that person. So I'm assuming that as the wise men go down to Bethlehem and they find Jesus, that their natural inclination would be, oh, let's go back and tell the king and see what the king will give us for this. But it's interesting what happens with the wise men after they visit Jesus and they bring him the gifts of of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as they're leaving, look what happens in verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. There they were, listening to promptings of the Spirit, as opposed to, you know, the, the declaration of a king or trying to please man. Instead, they're, they're following the promptings of the Spirit. They go a different way. Herod never finds out where Jesus is, and Joseph is able to get him out of, t- of town safely, thanks to these wise men taking the Holy Spirit for their guide and not being deceived. Brian, we had talked before we started recording about the wise men bringing and presenting to the Savior the, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you made a comment about the symbolism of that. We see these gifts in, in the ancient temple, the gold being found in the Holy of Holies. Frankincense would be burned in the altar of incense, and the myrrh was oil to, to anoint, right? In this case, in essence, the, the future king, if you will. As we spoke of this with our missionaries, uh, we would often say the, the, gold, the Savior today doesn't want gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? He wants Gloria Frank and Myra. He wants <laughs> you to bring people to him that they can be uh, blessed by him and healed by him and saved by him, right? But that linkage to the temple kind of gives me the thought that as, as a prospective missionary, perhaps I ought to symbolically bring a gift to the Savior by coming to the temple and making that part of a regular routine before I go on my mission. And of course, when you're on a mission, your, your focus is on gathering uh, Israel on this side of the veil, but there will be opportunities in the mission if a temple is close by to go to the temple and to make that a, a joyous opportunity, and kind of in symbolism of presenting the gifts to the Savior. And maybe to bring Gloria, Frank, and Myra to the <laughs> temple, temple right. to eventually to the temple. And really, that now we're talking about our missionary purpose again. Yeah. The, the gifts that you bring to the Savior are the gifts that you'll bring to your mission. You've developed many gifts throughout your life, gifts of the Spirit. And you'll be able to take those gifts and offer them up with your whole soul to the Savior as you begin to serve his people. Remember the The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. If you labor all your days to just bring one soul unto him, how great shall be your joy. That's the kind of gift that is a wonderful, wonderful thing that we can give to the Savior. When I think about these wise men, the record says that they were guided by a star. Uh, To me, this is evidence that God wants his children to find him. And he'll provide heaven's help to do it. One of the most repeated phrases in the scriptures is seek and you shall find. Again, the Lord is eager to have his children find him. 
uh, and to find his son. And I think of God's intentional efforts to help all of us to find him, really. And our missionaries are part of that heavenly help. Uh, the Savior sending forth the missionaries that they can find God and, and the work that you do as a missionary to help facilitate this. When you say that, uh, Brian, seek and you shall find, there's also the part of the scripture that says you've got to actually do something, knock, <laughs> and the door will be open, ask, and it will be given. And so it's, it's also a, an effort to want and desire and to be seeking for it, but then to do the action of actually asking and actually knocking. Um, and, and that could be said of, of members as we work with them as missionaries to help the members seek Israel on this side of the, the veil to, to ask for those blessings and then to knock and, and actually do something. Great thought. I just it occurred to me as you were saying that if, if, if a young person ever wanted to be a star, mm. go on a mission. Isn't That's that right. what, what happened right. here is that the star led wise men to Jesus Christ. Missionaries will lead the very elect or wise men, women to Jesus Christ. This is a great chance. Anytime you, you, you bring someone to the Savior, you function like a star. Who doesn't want to be a star, right? Yeah. And I love that our prophet has has said that one of the most important prayers a missionary can ask is to find those that will let God prevail in their life. And what struck me in listening and learning with you today is that in each of these individuals and groups of people, they all allowed or let God prevail in their lives, from Mary to, to Joseph to the shepherds to these wise men. Um, they, they all allowed uh, God to prevail in their life. And that leads us to the, to the shining star, the northern star, even the, even the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes to the Savior. We can't, of course, forget him who ultimately allowed his father to prevail in his life. What, what would we learn then from this Christ child as we contemplate his role in the nativity here? Well, a good friend of mine, Steve Peterson, who I met uh, when he was serving, he and his wife were serving as mission leaders in, of all places, the Hawaii Honolulu mission. (laughs) That was a mission? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible, terrible. (laughs) And Steve has joined us on the phone. Steve currently serves as the president of the Draper Temple, and I have the privilege of serving under his leadership as a temple worker and he shared uh, a Christmas story in uh, one of our preparation meetings that was just marvelous and, and really hit home. And, and Steve, uh, thank you for your willingness to join with us and share that story with our listeners, which I think is, is very powerful. So, Steve, would you share that with us? Okay. Happy to be on the podcast. This is my favorite Christmas story, so here we go. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, with his devoted young son, shared a passion for art collecting. Together, they traveled the world, adding the very finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed elderly man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. 
The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they dealt with art collectors around the world. One year, as winter approached, war engulfed the nation and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram. His beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. Within days, his worst fears were confirmed. The young man had been killed while rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish and sadness. The joy of the season, a season that he and his son had always looked forward to with great anticipation, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed old man. As he walked to the door, the masterpieces of art on the walls only reminded him that his son was not coming home. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a pale young soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced himself to the man saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few minutes? I have something I want to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man's son had told everyone of his, not to mention his father's, love of art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of the man's son. Though the world would never consider it a work of genius, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture above his fireplace. A few hours later, after the soldier had departed, the old man set about his task. True to his word, the painting went above the fireplace, pushing aside hundreds of thousands of dollars of painting. And then the man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease his grief. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which museums around the world clamored. He told his neighbors it was the greatest gift he had ever received. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away. The art world was in great anticipation. With the collector's passing and his only son dead, the paintings would be sold at an auction. According to the will of the old man, all of the artwork would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day he had received his greatest gift. The day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled this day. Greatness would be achieved as many would claim, I have the greatest collection. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Who will open the bidding with $100, he asked. Minutes passed, no one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of the man's son. Let's forget it and go on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. No, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the sun? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10 for the painting? I am not a rich man and it is all I have. But I knew the boy, so I would like to have it. 
The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell, tears filled the room, and someone exclaimed, now we can get on with this and we can bid on the real treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We did not come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all of these paintings? There are millions of dollars of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on here. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. Thank you, Steve, for sharing that. It was impactful to me when I heard it. And, and I think it's impactful to any of the listeners of this podcast that whoever takes the son indeed gets it all. So uh, we really appreciate you sharing that, Steve. You're very welcome. Brian, when you commented that Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, they all allowed God to prevail in their lives, and then you led into this discussion about the shining star, the Savior. I think the message of the story President Peterson just shared, indeed, whoever takes the Son, the Savior of the world, and follows him, receives all that the Father has. Sean, you commented about your recent visit to the Holy Land. What thoughts or impressions did you have as it relates to the Savior's role, especially this season as we celebrate Christmas? I spent an hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our guide was able to section off, get us into a sectioned off place in the garden. And, and, and amazingly, he said to us, we've reserved an hour and you get to go and just be in the garden for an hour. And so I did that. And the, the phrase that, that came to mind was, was back to that phrase we mentioned earlier in this episode. And that is nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when we speak of discipleship, we, we speak of our discipleship towards Jesus Christ. We're disciples of Christ. Jesus was a disciple of his father. And his will, his, his passion in life was to do what his father had sent him to this world to do at all costs. Even if it was painful, even if it was difficult, he never, that was never the worry for Jesus. The worry, or not the worry, but the focus was always, is this my father's will? And if it was his father's will, then it was the will of Jesus Christ. And to me, that's one of the great legacies that I learn from this little baby who grew up to be our Savior. And that was just a total, uh, the, the total way that he deferred to his Heavenly Father. And that is something that, that I always want to do as a result of, of his example. And, and we look at Preach My Gospel. It is Preach the Savior's Gospel when we look at the effort that we're doing in our homes and at church of come follow me, it's following the savior. Everything we're doing is, is following the savior, preaching his gospel, helping to bring all mankind back to the father, because that was what the savior, what he wanted to do. And that was his objective. 
When I think of the Savior in this context, uh, you'll recall in the Book of Mormon in First Nephi chapter 11, Nephi wanted to see the, the, the vision or the dream that his father saw. And as the angel began to show Nephi, he showed him a tree. Then he asked him, what, what does that mean? And uh, uh, of course, we've come to know that the tree represents the love of God. Uh, and when he asked the interpretation of the tree, the angel showed him a virgin. And then he showed that virgin with a child in her arms. And that was the interpretation of the love of God. What would that have been like? And I don't know how Nephi came to that conclusion that that this child in his mother's arms was the love of God manifest, right? But uh, but I think it's so beautiful. And we, we he then is asked, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And Nephi goes, I, I don't know, but I know that that God loves his children. And Nephi was more right than wrong there because that, that was the evidence of God's love that he sent his son to, to save the world. Um, and you think about all that the Savior gave up in that condescension. Here, here was a God. He was a God. He was powerful and almighty. Created the earth. Created the earth with his words, right? And he... he he spoke from Sinai, and the, and the earth shook, right? And, and then he comes as a child, completely dependent upon his mother for everything. She had to change his diaper. All he could do was cry when he was hungry, and she would have to meet his needs there. And uh, What he did to condescend, both in the birth and then later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he literally took upon himself the mortal experience of all mankind. And, and thinking back on the dream, as you hold on to the rod of iron to get to the tree, you know, we, we know that that means the Word of God. I kind of look at that in, in the Scriptures in the New Testament, and the Word was God, uh, or, or holding on to Christ and his atonement. So I look at that rod as holding on to the atonement of Jesus Christ that allows us to get to the tree to fully enjoy the love of God that he has for us. Well, friends, uh, I think Brian, John, and I can collectively just bear our witness to all of you that Jesus is the Christ. We love him. We know that he lives. We know that he guides this great work. And we pray and hope for each of us at this Christmas season that we'll be filled with his light personally so that we can then go out and share his light with others. And I would add to know also that when you leave on your mission, when you stand at the door of an individual knocking, when you're in the home teaching, you are representing the Savior. You say the words he would say. You look the way he would look because you represent him in fulfilling his purposes to his Father. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preach My Gospel Mission Prep Podcast and that it helps you in your study of Preach My Gospel and preparing you for your mission. 
Please join us for our next episode. And if you feel this podcast might be helpful to others preparing to serve a mission, please invite them to join us on our journey through and discovery of Preach My Gospel. For more information on how to get Institute credit for this podcast and other offerings by the Utah Valley Institute of Religion, please visit utahvalleyinstitute.com. You may also find us on Instagram at Preach My Gospel Podcast. Feel free to send questions or comments to Preach My Gospel Podcast at gmail.com. The Preach My Gospel Mission Prep Podcast is produced with the permission of the Utah Valley Institute of Religion. The hosts are expressing their personal views based on their own experiences, applying the principles of Preach My Gospel, and accept full responsibility for the content in these podcast episodes.